Hello and welcome to another instalment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast where we connect leaders within the gaming industry to discuss passions and challenges. I'm Sol and I'm going to be your host today and I'm joined by an amazing panel to discuss the importance of game design. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, we've got a really interesting episode here today. We are going to be discussing all things game design and we have a very experienced panel from different backgrounds, from different studios to give their takes on the subject today. Um, so what we'll do is we'll start with a few introductions. Let's just go around the room. Uh, Adrian, would you like to give us a bit of an intro on yourself, please, for the listener? Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Adrian Wüst. I am lead game designer at Stratosphere Games. We've just soft launched Dawn of Ages, and uh, at the end of this month, I will actually be transitioning over to work for Supersonic, uh, publisher from Unity. Nice, thank you. Uh, over to you, Jeremy. Yes, uh, hello everyone. So I'm Jeremy Hardwick. I am game director at Deck 13, uh, and I am in charge of all, I would say, the direction for the game design, so gameplay, quest design, um, open world design, etc. And we have a game called Atlas Fallen that will be coming out um, in a few weeks now, the 10th of August. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. And over to you, Kiel. Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Kiel, so thanks for having me. Um, I'm currently lead game design at uh, Soft Games. I'm working on a game called Solitaire Home Story. Um, it's a casual game. I've been in casual games uh, all throughout my career. And um, yeah, recently uh, promoted to the lead position where I'm really coaching uh, other designers uh, and having a lot of fun. So yeah. Awesome, thank you, Kiel. And finally, Marcel. Uh, hey, I'm Marcel Sons. I've been in the industry now for 12 years, I think, and I've had my stint at InnoGames, Wargaming, Jaeger recently, and now I'm in a startup here in Berlin, although we actually work across the globe, and our aim is to make like the next evolution in survival games. So if you think about things like Conan Exiles or Valheim, we want to like give a step up to this genre. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Thank you all for your introductions there. So we're not going to hesitate. Why should we? We're going to jump into topic number one. So let's throw it back to yourself, Marcel. You've proposed the subtopic today of what is a design culture and why is it important? So if you could just give our listeners a bit of understanding on why you chose that subtopic and uh, what it is you'd like to add to that. Yeah, just it's to my impression that this topic is somewhat underrepresented or not discussed as often as it needs to be. Um, I mean, fundamentally, we make games as an entertainment product, right? So the fun comes first, unless you make a serious game, then it might be different. But generally speaking, it's about fun. And to achieve fun, you need great game design. And um, I think companies should more often think about how can we make sure that we have great game design within the company. And for that, I think you need to build a culture. 
so this is like the main reason. Um, it has some other benefits as well, um, but I guess we can dig into those as we discuss this as a group. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, as you said, like uh, game design culture or design culture in general already has to start on a company level, I feel like. So it has to be already incorporated somewhat in the company vision. It's the way that we work together. Um, it's important for ex for managing the expectations of the people that work on a certain project, but also for the players to know what kind of uh, entertainment products to expect from a certain publisher or developer, for example. Cool. Yeah, I think uh, looking at it from that, I, I totally agree. Like from a company, it should be super clear, like what the game is about, like what's like everybody, I, the way I look at it, everybody should be thinking about the game all the time. Like, um, and not just the game, but also the audience. I think sometimes uh, in some companies, um, some like some team members are still really stuck in what they would like to make and not really thinking about the audience yet. Uh, and I think that the, the the coolest companies I've worked with, they're really working just for the audience. And I think that's the um, they, that should be part of the culture. Uh, it should be sort of the thing that drives everybody, even though it might not be something that you play yourself, that should be something that everybody should remind each other of. Uh, and I think if that's there, that's a very healthy culture. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but at least like the mindset of everybody uh, involved. To me, what I would add is um, why it's important to have a design culture is that the what makes our media different from any other media is that we have interactivity right it is what makes us different from a movie or else and i think people who are trying to recreate a movie or trying to recreate another form of experience are not leveraging what we are capable to do that others cannot do we have all forms of art that come we have the music we have um, of course the visuals um, and we have the interactivity and i think this is the most important thing to understand to try to figure out what we want to create as pillars so of course what is the experience we want to create and by fun that doesn't mean necessarily enjoyable right when you play a survival horror several times you find yourself frustrated but in that kind of good frustration where you know this is what the game is trying to deliver to you and you feel like you the character should feel or what the designer wants you to feel but um in that sense thinking about how the interactivity can reinforce every um, as much as possible of course we cannot make every aspect um, always interactive and etc but see how we can weave in everything together in order to create the most um i would say uh, unified um, experience for the player that aligns uh, with indeed these pillars and also i fully agree that a big and important point is to be able to detach oneself from uh, the the process in the detached or subjective perception as players from what would be good for players. I think it's not good necessarily, um, not that it is impossible. Um, I, many designers do it and I think it's absolutely fine, but ideally a designer should like the product that they are working on, but they should also be fully conscious that they are not making it for themselves. And this is something that often happened for us, not to be on Atlas Fallen. You know, um, we have some systems and so on, and you can be easily falling into, oh yeah, we'll make these super complex systems because for me that's super interesting. I've been playing this all the time and I want to have a bit more going in depth and so on, but you really need to think, okay, is this something that players will be able to comprehend? Will they be interested into doing this? And even if some players would be interested into in doing this, how many people will really benefit from that? And maybe 
another approach will bring, bring as much uh, pleasure to all players that will be playing the game or um, maybe sometimes certain will be getting a bit less out of it but in order to satisfy your target audience and not just you and the very little portion of people you're representing so i totally agree with you on the what like that you think to think about the play experience and that a designer should not just make things for themselves but um, actually respect the audience and sort of entertain them so there's a reason why I brought up this topic in the first place. And um, I feel like what often falls a bit through the grid is thinking about the how. And um, if you think about probably discussions you had with colleagues in the past, when they ask, what makes good game design? How do you define great? I think this is often where um, it gets a bit tricky. And um, I believe this is where a good design culture can come into place. Because a design culture, to me, is also defining as a company, what is great? What are the components, the ingredients of specific aspects of design that make up great? And um, yeah, I've seen some instances, and I don't want to mention names, obviously, where it was like, yeah, it's up to everyone, everyone's individual designer to define that. And I don't agree with that. I think a company, especially a team, should have a shared definition of um, terminology. Um, defining what the, the priorities of certain aspects, right? Do we want clarity? Do we want depth? Uh, do we want juicy, lightweight fun? Um, all those questions need to be answered and then you need to dissect how do we get there? Yeah, we've discussed now a little bit or defined what uh, design culture makes up for us and the way we would like to work. I was now wondering a little bit about a follow-up question. Um, I mean, we are obviously as designers, uh, more at the center of the company, but we are not isolated. It's not just all designers working for the company. What do you think? How high should the design culture rank in the company overall? Maybe even seeing that it doesn't necessarily come from the founders or the people that, that created the business in the first place. Say you come to a company that has already existed for many years and um, how do you establish a good design culture? And yeah, where do you rank this in in or in in relation to other aspects that are going on into the company i think that's a that's a good question so for for me the the way i always look at it is um i tend to whenever i join a company and, and sometimes also uh, whenever i transition to a different project for example i think we're what's very healthy to do is always look at what's already out there in terms of other games so what other games have been created that are similar to the game that we're about to build and then that like and then copying what's successful from those games uh, is one of the cultures that a company can have. So uh, it's one of the cultures that I really like. Like I really like looking at existing things and then copying what works. But it differs very much from person to person. Also, I think from company to company, if that's acceptable behavior, let's say to to take what's working directly, almost almost directly, almost one-on-one, -on -one, and then and then adapting it into your product. Um, and I think that's a I think that's a good example of, of um, what's like what can be considered as good design. Uh, maybe in one company can be very bad and horrible design in another company. Um, but I think the the approach that like the, the culture that I really like is the one where we where copying is totally acceptable. Um, and it also ties into Jeremy. I think that's what he said earlier about what systems work. And I think if you can go 
grab back to other games and see what systems are working in those games. Um, that generally leads to good game design, uh, I, I feel. And there's also often a, a big aversion amongst game designers against this, right? Like, hey, we're creative people. We should be able to come up with our own unique way of solving these problems. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the way I look at different cultures and, and the impact they can have uh, in companies as well. Yeah, I think that's a very good point also that Marcel brought up and that we, we've talked about, um, which is to me that also it's important for management and actually for direction to know what we want to achieve and what we don't. Because I do not think, um, and especially um, that becomes more and more obvious as uh, people go up in management position, there is rarely a perfect decision. There is rarely a decision where we're like, yeah, this is going to make everybody happy and this is going to work in all cases. It's more about choosing which way we want to go and how all of this lines together to give a certain result and um, I, I am also I would say of uh, an approach which I would consider to be rational here which is um, I think for a game to stand out it needs to have very strong features that will be somehow allowing it to be differentiated from the rest and even that's on a personal level but pushing a bit forward the media but at the same time we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Like uh, there are certain things that exist and anyways, whether we want to admit it or not, when we make a game of a certain genre, there are some codes already that are available, some conventions that players will expect. And if we try to change all of these conventions and these things, the players will not be able to understand it. And that's also an important part, again, of thinking about not ourselves, but thinking about players. If we try to revolutionize everything and players cannot understand it anyways, I'm not really sure we're providing them an interesting experience. It could be. It could be that we create a new game genre or something else, but we really need to be fully conscious of what we're trying to deliver. And I think it's part indeed of the DNA of the company, but even more so of the DNA of a project. I've seen some companies that do very, very different things based on different projects. And I think it's indeed extremely important that this is defined at the beginning so the whole team can be behind and work with that in mind. Um, I just wanted to quickly get back to uh, something you said, Kel, uh, about copying and that it should be okay. I mean, I agree. Um, so often when I do things, I would also pick a reference of some other game, especially when it comes to the game feel of it. Um, but I think the reason why, to me, a good game design culture is so important is to not blindly copy stuff, right? Because if you have a company that doesn't have a shared understanding of design, you might have this situation where someone says, we take feature A from this game and feature B from that game, we put it all together, and in the end you have a freaking Frankenstein monster, and no one understands why things don't work out. So ultimately, even if you copy, I think, on a high level, in an abstract, you need to understand what you're copying. And for that, you need a design culture. Otherwise, you never did the exercise of dissecting the thing you're looking at and taking the sort of like learnings from it, right? And the good thing is, even if you then dissect something and you um, just decide to discard it, you hopefully have some high-level learnings you can take away and make something new. And I think this is key to innovate and innovate with quality. Because if you would only always just copy without fully understanding, I guess it's harder to innovate, right? Yeah, I 100% I agree. I think uh, before you take anything, you should understand why you're taking it. Like what, what problem are you trying to solve? Uh, so, so totally uh, agreeing on that one. And then even if you take it, like you should also think about like how does it fit in your project? Um, and then 
so yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, but then coming back to the culture, I think um, presenting things to to each other that are new uh, new ideas or existing ideas should always come with this in mind. Like what what's the thing we're trying to solve? Um, and uh, yeah, so just thinking about the the, the culture uh, and the way you sort of prepare this, I think we start really early. So we, we just uh, hired another intern uh, and we, we told her right at the beginning of the, the, the conversation or like in the first conversation that look, we, we are working on a very commercial product. So, I mean, it's still a game, players have fun, but also the goal is to monetize and to you know hit certain KPIs. Uh, and we tell this right from the start so that whenever somebody joins, they know what kind of project they're getting uh, themselves into. And there can also not like be any confusion about like, hey, I, I thought we we're gonna do this wildly experimental thing. Uh, well, that was not what we're, what we're doing in this game. Uh, so that's sort of, I think how we at least try to manage people's expectation whenever they join the team. I think that's really, it's working out really nicely so far. Um, and we still have super interesting discussions sometimes about the more experimental stuff. So we're still brainstorming in all kinds of directions. But whenever it really comes down to it, we, it really helps uh, in our team to have sort of examples from other games, like, hey, this is how they solve this particular problem, especially in, in terms of UI and stuff. So I think these things are, are at least accepted to bring up. And there's no immediate aversion against like, hey, but we should do it better than they, uh, for example. Yeah, I'm glad that you quickly touched on that point uh, regarding monetization, which is obviously also part of the design culture. And we are also having certain resp responsibilities when it comes to that and are very involved with it. Obviously, in the first place, we're trying to create fun. And maybe if we're in a free-to-play monetization model, we want to see retention and then later on monetization. But at the end point, we are in a company whose ultimate goal is to create revenue and profits. And um, yeah, it also should be considered. And I think it's very important also when hiring people in that uh, this becomes clear. As a designer, if, if this is not what you want to engage with so much, um, I will say look for a company that doesn't have that as the highest goal or maybe try to create your own games. I think that way you can be more successful in your own way, basically. I think also, yeah, it varies um, a lot based on the company, right? You have some uh, some games that are, um, if we talk about um, The Last Guardian or this type of games, it's more for prestige. It's not really for money that it brings. It has a, um, a desire to bring something different um, in the game industry. And I think then they have other um, goals. But I think indeed we need to very early, not only even know what the company wants, but even the target audience. Again, if you have a mass market, audience these people um, are not going to be interested in your new revolutionary game um, and you will need to bring a bit of that but bring a bit of the accessibility and the expectations that they have um, in there and I think this um, do that doesn't mean actually you don't make a good meal but that may and you know it's like if I make the, the reference to to some food it's just that you will need to be having some references some little things that they know that they can use as uh, their common knowledge and you don't try to make the whole meal with like plenty of new ingredients.
as they have never tried. And um, I think this is also the best way to open the industry to different kinds of people. A lot of um, uh, the previous games were also not at all targeted at a female demo demographic or at certain people. And I think um, trying to open the industry is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and I believe that still there is the opportunity to be, again, bringing something to find a, a proper middle ground between having a game that sells and is not just a technical demo um, and at the same time tries to do something that pushes a bit forwards the limits of what can be done, even when not having a quadruple A budget or such. Yeah, thank you, guys. I think we really hit on one of the key questions there, which is originality versus mainstreaming game development. It's it's uh, no necessarily uh, right way or wrong way about doing things. It's uh, it's always a hot topic to speak about. Uh, we will move on to topic number two now, um, which is over to Adrian. You propose the subtopic of what moral responsibilities do game designers hold? So if you could just give us um, your take on that subtopic and why you chose it, please. Um, I chose it because actually all of the projects, almost all of the projects that I worked on in the past have been um, free-to-play games. So in the past, like already mentioned earlier a little bit, I, I had to walk the line between um, making profits and creating fun. And sometimes I feel like one is compromising on the other a little bit. And it's... Uh, definitely not an easy line to walk as a designer and i was just interested how you guys feel about it not just when it comes to monetization and making profit but maybe also other moral dilemmas that you have in your projects i guess i can i can start so i'm a bit farther from the monetization topic um, as we make premium games at deck 13 and also in the past companies i've been in but there are definitely um, things that i do believe also we need to have in mind the base one which is very stupid um, or it sounds very stupid but to me it's an important one as a designer i can't stand it when uh, i feel a game wastes my time. Um, I think as designers, we have the, the obligation to make sure that the time of the player is uh, not wasted. It can be part of a loop, of a game loop of some sort or else that the player has to invest time. If grinding or whatever, you know, some games, it's part of it and it's part of the fun and the pleasure that some people get out of it. But we shouldn't artificially, I believe, extend um, the, at least um, I can speak for premium games, but like waste the time of the player send them back and forth doing the same thing, etc. We have an obligation to make it to some degree interesting and valuable to the players. And of course, um, after that, there are some more, um, I would say, deeper topics which are linked to addiction or linked um, and that can touch um, free-to-play games, but that can also touch online games and so on. So figuring out how to ensure that we are also not impacting the health of the player, both physically and mentally. Um, and um, there is a topic that I'm quite interested in also, like the fourth wall in games there are some little attempts there but i can foresee that also some people the more this might develop people might have also difficulty um, uh, maybe seeing what is part of the game what is not i think stuff like that also would need to be thought about certain games like that and i, I really do think we cannot impact all players health and we cannot waste their time to me these are really two important points I would just say on a high level, game design is a lot about psychology, right? Understanding the, how the human mind works, playing with the motivation of the player, triggering fun and so on. And you could pull from the black book of game design, which would be psychological manipulation to achieve the certain goals. It could be monetization. It could be retention. Um, like you said, um, uh, Jeremy, wasting the player's time. Um, so I guess it's just understanding the sort of power that you potentially wield over someone's mind 
um, and how that can affect their life. The problem is you can't really draw a line because it's a scale. You can go from zero, you're like the most responsible person ever. Maybe you don't even do monetization. You offer your game completely for free and so on. Um, and you respect the player's time up to 100% where you're like an exploiting locust. Um, but where's the line? Is it at 45%? Um, I think this is a bit tricky. Um, and there's probably no golden answer to that. Unless you have opinions on that. Well, so I, I have... Uh, uh, I Immediately, like when thinking about these things, I have some examples uh, from the games. Uh, maybe that helps. So, um, one thing that in the games uh, I've been working on, you have these pre-level boosters, right? And then, whenever the pre-level booster is unlocked, we tell the we teach the player to 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 automate like to activate them. Uh, and then there was this dark design pattern where. Um, from a technical point of view, you could just leave that one selected, right? Like you didn't have to deselect it. Uh, it's like the, the player had to actively deselect it to not use it. And I think things like that are not really nice. And they, in the end, they will probably uh, backfire. Um, and I think that that's sort of the, the way I'm looking at it. Like there is some sort of an, an automatic, automated balancing where Whatever, like whenever you go too far, there's probably some backlash from players, uh, or there's something else going wrong in, in your game. So we had designed uh, for our game, we had designed this beautiful um, share dialogue where people could share their their progress on Facebook, and we made the the close button a little bit like not visible enough, right? So because we really wanted them to share, um, and then. This seemed fine until we put this share dialogue in level five, and we saw this huge drop off. And we're like, ah, what's going on, right? And then we figured out, like, hey, they could actually not find this button. Um, and we would lose the player relatively quickly. So we made this button, again, a lot more visible. So, it, it, like, uh, the longer, uh, like, the longer I'm in, in, in this industry, the more I learn about it. But I feel like there's some sort of uh, an automatic balancing going on there. Uh, so I'm, I'm not too afraid to try out certain things that are a little bit on the line, uh, but I think, yeah, what, what Jeremy also said, like not wasting the player's time is one for sure. And I think if you're going too far, you will lose the player, like they will feel betrayed, betrayed and they will not choose to play your game anymore. So, yeah. Uh, what, you, what you just mentioned with the automatic uh, balancing reminds me of one of the projects that I worked on. We called it then dynamic balancing, dynamic difficulty balancing. and I mean, on the one side, you have the argument that you want to challenge the player because if they're bored, they will churn and you're not entertained that way. But at the same time, you're also pushing them to make purchases in the end to progress through the game. And there it already gets a little bit iffy, kind of how you make your decisions. Um, wanted to also pick up what Jeremy said earlier with uh, valuing the player's mental health and uh, I guess in the end also their financial health because... Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of monetization techniques that are abusing addiction patterns. For example, loot boxes. I mean, gambling per se is legal in many countries. Uh, it's actually legal if you cannot get anything out of the gambling itself almost everywhere in the world, I think. Um, but that when it comes to children, I think there's an additional responsibilities for game designers to protect them because they're especially vulnerable. And um, maybe there's no legislation in place yet to protect them 
And uh, luckily, when it comes to loot boxes, now actually things have happened over the past few years, and I'm glad they did. They became more transparent with uh, what they actually offer. Uh, I think that should continue further in this direction. I wish the game designers would regulate themselves more, but uh, with the goal of profit at the end of the day, it's sometimes hard to stand your ground and uh, argue for why the company should make less revenue and therefore be more ethical in that regard. Yeah, a difficult topic, I think. Uh, another responsibility that I th thought of for game designers, I think, is definitely accessibility. It's thinking about um, uh, people that can't read or that cannot uh, distinguish certain colors from one another, or even when it comes down to localization, I think it's also a certain responsibility uh, that we hold in order to make the games accessible for the people that want to enjoy them in the end and not exclude anyone uh, also, exclusion through discrimination, I think, is something that we should definitely stay away from and um, rather strive for more sustainable game designs where players can enjoy it over a long time and not get burned out after it after, after a short time. Um, uh, just, Kjell, quickly as an anecdote, um, what you meant as a backfire when you do too many evil things. Um, a producer I worked with called it the shit list. So whenever you do something evil or bad, players will note it down in a little shit list. And if the list is too full, they will eventually churn and go away. I think it's a beautiful metaphor to think about the things you do and kind of keep track of. Um, ultimately, though, on the whole monetization topic, though, I would like to add, my feeling is when you work in this kind of area and the company is mostly geared towards profits, um, then maybe the company does a little evil thing for a while and then the team gets used to it and it does, it's not perceived as evil anymore. And then you push the boundary a little further and a little further and so on and so on until um, basically if you look back, um, the ways have changed and maybe you're not as responsible anymore as you used to be um, because our minds change and adapt, right? And at some point... We delve deeper and uh, <laughs> kind of look into the abyss and don't notice we are in it already. Interesting, interesting point. I think uh, what what really helps me sort of uh, um, stay on the right side of uh, of the equation is, is ha having like other designers in the team, um, especially the the personally like the, the the younger game designers are like they still just want to make beautiful things so. That really helps in general to um, to to have people sort of calling you back, like, hey, maybe like this is not okay, this is not fair. Um, and then also just going back to what, what Adrian mentioned about the dynamic difficulty, I think it can also work the other way around. So if you use the dynamic difficulty to dynamically make the level easier if the player is stuck for too long. I think that can also help and um, and a way to I found always good to explain it to management, for example, uh, is if you can get the player to get unstuck, they can get further into the game and in the long term they will spend more. So I think there's always some sort of a flip side also, like how can you how can you turn this dark design into something positive for the player? Hey, maybe they can purchase something in the game that allows them to do this cool thing. Um, Instead of them, uh, instead of cheating them with it, basically. So I think that's uh, my take on this. 
Yeah, I would want to echo on a few points, but um, I, I fully agree with, with what was said. Essentially, I think um, this is a human science to some degree. So indeed, it's going to be very difficult having a perfect uh, framework to say this is good, this is not good. We could have a code of ethic. I think that might not be a bad thing to have. But as for everything, I'm sure there would be ways to circumvent it and somehow figure out a way that's not good for the player. I think um, also what was said about the player's trust is very true. I do think it once the player's trust is lost, and even if it's not about money or very important things, but in a game, as long if a system does not work once, they will not trust, trust that afterward it will continue to to work, etc. So I think it's very important for us as designers to maintain a level of trust in the systems that we build, etc., for the player to uh, feel that their time is properly invested in our game instead of going somewhere else because uh, once the trust is broken they will go and um, to me I, I also agree this is a bit what uh, Kiel said but to me I always when I have um, um, complex decisions in terms of um, yeah my career or what I want to do etc I try to think about the reason why I decided to come in this industry because I'm sure all of us could have gone for much more lucrative businesses in other places and so on but we decided to come in this industry because we had certain things we wanted to do we wanted to create etc and so, so for me I tried to always think back at what brought me here and why and what I'm trying to achieve in order to try as much as possible to not become blasé and um, to accustom to certain things I wouldn't feel comfortable with, um, but try to remain truthful to the reason. Again, I am here and instead of somewhere else where I could probably um, have a much more convenient situation, but not so um, rewarding on a personal level. Yeah, Jeremy, I wanted to get back to one of the first points that you made about uh, wasting the player's time and was now thinking a little bit of where do you draw actually that line? I mean, obviously, we can tell that we're wasting the player's time if they're doing chores that they don't enjoy. But maybe there are some that actually do enjoy this grind of kind of pointless tasks. Is that morally okay for us? I mean, if I would set the bar very high for myself personally, I would say... Um, as long as I educate the player, it's definitely something good. As long as I inspire their um, inspiration or make them see things differently, learn new aspects about something, that's always something good and something I would like to go for. But um, yeah, how do you feel about it? So to me, again, I'm, I'm in a slightly different paradigm compared to you guys. So of course, it's a bit of an easier situation for me to say, uh, to, to, to comment on uh, from my position. But I would say I always try to think of, does this bring the player something? Does this reinforce the experience that we're trying to provide? And again, it could be short term, it's creating frustration or something like that, not to the point where the player would give up on the game, but at some point they will realize, oh, now I feel so rewarded because that got invested into something and, and I feel that I, I got something out of it. Um, but also trying to think of what we can bring on the side. And indeed, it can be that uh, the players educate themselves on the way or somehow uh, get to reflect on something, etc. I always try to think of um, striking a balance that feels good to me. And again, I think um, as for every single uh, of these decisions or most of them, there is not a perfect answer. There is not a, um, a pre-made recipe that will work for everyone and everywhere. But I try to always think, okay, would I consider 
that this is respectful to somebody I know I enjoy, uh, um, you know, a friend or else who would be playing this. Do I think this would be a waste of their time? Do I think if I play this type of game, that would be a waste of my time? Is there something I can get out of it? Is this the type of frustration that later on will lead me to better enjoy the game to some degree or feel something different? Or does it feel like... I'm just being milked as the player. My time is being milked or something like that. And if that's the case, then that doesn't mean the mechanics needs to go away because sometimes you have some choices you cannot do without because the system requires it or certain things like that. But then I would ask the designers uh, in the team or I would try myself if I, I can. Um, <laughs> I don't touch the mechanics at individual levels so much anymore, but I did. And, and what I would do is uh, I would return and try to think of what can I bring in there that is valuable. And we had an example of something like that actually um, we simply um, some uh, items to collect in the world, etc. And we could not figure out really a way to give them value and to not make it feel like a chore to the player. And then we started thinking even a bit out of the realm of just game design um, in the strict sense of gameplay. But we started thinking about, oh, but that could be a cool stuff about the law. And we collect items that then can be traded for money, but then you can discover more about the law and collect them and figure out certain things. And immediately it started appealing to a certain audience of players and it felt less like a chore and I think it's about that figuring out sometimes you cannot circumvent the issue you cannot uh, because generally you can circumvent pretty much everything but money and time will be the blockers and uh, when you cannot do that what can you do to make it valuable again and feel that you're being respectful to the player interesting uh, interesting thoughts I, I really like the the way like the way you're thinking about like in terms of adding value I think that's the most important thing, right? Like, what what kind of value does this game bring to me? Um, and I think I've I have an interesting example from a game where uh, where I'm working on right now, where we added a squirrel in the in the levels, and that squirrel would just sit on top of the things that you would want to go to as a player. So it was like super frustrating, um, and like everybody hated that squirrel. And then at some point we were like, all right, let's like how we should fix this. Um, and we attached it to one of the uh, boosters in the game, which is a wrecking ball, and the wrecking ball would then scare the squirrel. Uh, and until that moment, the, the squirrel was not really doing anything in the, uh, for the game at all, like not, not for the players, nor for the metrics. So it was really just literally wasting the player's time um, until we added this wrecking ball, uh, which, is, which you can also buy for money. So it's also immediately a monetization um, mechanic, and it, it made both things better. So I think that's that was like a really nice example of where it's like it helped everything. Um, yeah, just wanted to add that as an example for like when we went the right way. I think. Yeah, I totally agree on uh, bringing value to the player. I would maybe even go one step ahead, one step further. If you can, if it's possible, bring some innovation to the market itself. I mean, we talked already earlier about um, taking certain elements over, but I think we also have the responsibility to still add like a little twist or own personal note or something that is like new and not already existing um, to the game so that players also have the value of finding something new on the market in a way. And I guess as a... Oh, sorry. I think do you want to say something? No, I just had a final note, but please finish what you were saying. I uh, just wanted to add as a last point what I also see somewhat as a responsibility for game designers, especially when it comes to multiplayer games, is uh, 
preventing or at least reducing toxicity within the community between the players. I think in the end, the game and its players, no one will really like profit in the end of having a toxic way of interacting with each other. Well, yeah, I agree. I think um, that's that's a whole different problem for me. I, I've never really had to deal with with that because I haven't worked on multiplayer games yet. Okay, I can imagine that's a difficult thing as well. Um, so as a, as a something that still came to mind was the, the monetization part of things. Like there's also features that are purely made for monetization. And I think they do sometimes go too far. Uh, where I where I think. I would easily draw the line. It's like whenever you, whenever you show the value of what you're making to the player, and they still have the opportunity to just not buy it to progress, I think then everything's all right. And I think um, the like the the skill of of monetization is just showing them the value of what they're about to buy at the right moment. Um, well, like so, just basically partly marketing what you're selling uh, inside the game, marketing the value of, the, of what you're selling. Uh, so, so that's uh, what I was thinking about. And um, yeah, that's it. Uh, since you haven't worked in a multiplayer game, maybe let me, let me give you a little example of uh, my career to outline how bad this can go. Uh, I was working once on a project where Players were sometimes toxic on the forums discussing which is which is other, and the way it was dealt with was basically by banning these people from the forums, and that backfired so hard that when the game launched, there was actually a lot of DDoS attacks on the servers, and the game at launch was unplayable for a lot of people, which basically resulted in like the worst launch that I ever experienced in my career. So, uh, yeah. Also, the way of how to deal with toxicity, maybe just censoring it or banning people off the forums is also not the ideal way how to do it. Well, for, for that, what I could say, um, we don't have, uh, I don't have also an extensive multiplayer uh, um, experience, but um, we have a co-op experience in Atlas Fallen. And what we try to do, of course, co-op being already by default kind of together, um, but I think trying to have within the system have the players benefiting from each other rather than suffering or having you know uh, to split things having to um, somehow one carrying the weight of the other but trying to see how they can together contribute to something and never have one feel like he, um, they are a weight on the shoulders of others can already be a good way to maybe limit that toxicity thinking about also the communication what we allow or don't allow for players and so on i think are um an important uh, yeah part of this and the last point which also i can maybe comment again maybe not to the same degree as you guys uh, with the free to play experience sorry but um I have experienced that also with questions concerning DLCs in various games. And I think um, it's also very important that to me, we never truncate the experience that we give to the player in order to um, somehow make more content out of it, more paid content. So to me, the player should feel like I have got the cool experience that was crafted for me. I don't feel like somebody 
just, you know, uh, uh, um, on purpose created problems for me along the way and tell me, oh, here now is the solution for a handcrafted problem and now pay for it. It should feel like everything is working fine, but I could have even more fun if more things are provided to me. And um, this is an opportunity for us as designers once we have crafted a good loop for the main game to start thinking about now we have an overview of this whole thing that we have, you know, worked for years on and tried to figure out. And now we can take a bit of distance and see how we could be even better. What can we add on top? And this is that extra content that we can, and anyways, we cannot create along the way because we didn't have this perspective on the whole project. We didn't have the final product. Then at that moment, we can start looking back at it and be like, yeah, actually, if we had thought about it, we could have done it a different way. But now we have the opportunity to add all of these things around in order to make it even better. And this is what we can create extra content from. Awesome. Thank you, guys. We're going to shift over to our third topic of the episode, which has been proposed by Kiel. Uh, Kiel, you proposed the subtopic of what should game designers stay away from? What are the challenges and situations that tend to make things worse instead of better for designers? So just give us a bit of a reason on on why you chose that. Yeah, so uh, I was uh, thinking about the opposite of, um, of why game design is important. Uh, and that's basically the shadow side of too, too much involvement of a game designer where it would actually hurt the, uh, the game and the players um, by something that we added to the project. Even if it's just like meddling with artists or developers when they run into a problem, uh, I sometimes feel like we as designers feel like we should solve everything and anything um, regardless of what's going on, just going, always be there like for answers, like it's part of our job, answering questions from artists and developers. But sometimes like we can go too far and be like, all right, I'll just answer everything that comes up. Um, so yeah, that, I was just curious if you guys had like examples from, um, from, from your work uh, where you had that. Adrian, are you... Uh... Sorry, I was... <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't have any concrete examples regarding this, but uh, definitely a list of bad habits or characteristics popped up into my mind when I heard the question, starting with uh, a bloated ego. I think as a designer, we have to take a stance and we have to have a vision, but we should not expect everyone to follow it 100%. People also have their own opinions. They are passionate about the project and want to... Yeah, bring those ideas that they have into the game as well. And that means that we also have to allow them in and we have to foster, again, a design culture that um, enables people to do that. And that means that even if you have a lot of ideas about the game, you cannot be like completely perfectionistic about it and expect everyone to live up to your standards. It's about uh, compromising and finding a way together. At least that's how I'm used to developing games and teams. It also means that people can take their own decisions. Uh, I don't want to micromanage anyone. And uh, even if I have ideas that I'm personally very convinced of, if I don't see them working out or I cannot convince the team to create this, I maybe have to adapt or even entirely let go of an idea, which is hard sometimes. But I think the more often you do it, the more used you get to it as well. And um, also what I've seen sometimes in the past is that sometimes designers 
create a certain system and the first time it's being tested they don't or they don't see their ideas reflected in the player's behavior i know they try to adapt this so hard and change it even if players may be already having fun with what's there they don't play the game as you intended it to be and change it therefore and i feel like if there's already fun maybe you should like tap into that and, and see what what is it that people in, are engaged with and maybe try to double down on that also so generally to this question i think something that might happen more to um, inexperienced designers but i guess everyone might be prone to this is adding too many ideas to the pile or trying to come up with new solutions for problems that weren't even present before you know uh, i guess it's kind of important to understand what the game that you're, you're about to make is about and uh, what kind of things it should fulfill and not change this during development. I mean, we all get impatient when the game takes like three years to make, let's say on average. And after two years, no new ideas have been added, at least not fundamental ones, because you're still following the original vision. Of course, it is easy to become impatient and be like, I have an idea for a completely new cool thing that I just saw in this other game and I know how to make it even better. Um, I think this can often lead to problems. Um, and I think a second important thing is um, not thinking that just because you're the designer, you have the ultimate knowledge about how to solve design. In the end, the whole team can and should contribute to it. And I think the worst thing you can do as a designer is to withhold the why or why you want to solve a certain thing or what the actual problem is. Um, anecdotally, I remember a story where uh, we made this uh, huge system in Forge of Empires, and I really struggled coming up with a solution for one particular thing. Um, and I talked to an artist, kind of casually, right? Like, I'm so frustrated. I don't know how to solve this. Like, this is what I want to achieve. And he was like, why don't you do it like this? Fuck. Why didn't I have this idea? Man, this is great. And so we did. And I think um, having these organic conversations with the whole team can be really fruitful. So I think in many cases, a designer should be more like a a channel to the whole team to help filter ideas and to uh, help the team stay on track, but not ultimately be the idea guys. Um, on my side, in addition to some topics that we have already touched a bit, like um, first putting the player before our own personal taste or uh, thinking of the intentions of the project before, um, again, what we want to do personally, uh, I would say um, a few things would be to not underestimate players, um, not underestimate their understanding of things, what they can achieve on their own, not try to, you know, handhold too much. Um, that can also be done in the opposite and throwing the players with no information. But um, I think we are in a phase where we understand more and more the need for, um, again, accessibility, proper player UX, etc. But it's important to also um, realize that there is a pleasure uh, in discovering and feeling smart by you know on our own and that the players can be smart and can be learning things on their own um, i would also say editing um, doing more with less uh, normally a good feature is a feature that solves 50 problems but it's one single very simple thing and i think this is why designers are important and needed in the team is because um, it can be very easy to find 50 solutions for 50 problems. But what we're trying to achieve is to find one single solution that solves 50 problems. And this is what our job is about. Um, and also a problem, I think, we, with some designers, it, it, it can be both extremes, either over theorizing. So staying at that moment where 
everybody's doing that gigantic system in their head and then they start prototyping and two seconds later, oh, actually it doesn't work <laughs> or it's not feasible or something like that. And the exact opposite, which is to prototype everything because we say we're iterative. So actually we could have thought about it two seconds and, th and realized that actually this does not fit the game or this does not work. But we immediately jumped into prototyping it because yeah, we will see. And I think again, a good designer is somebody who at the same time knows to not go too deep, but also can see four steps ahead before needing to prototype for it. Because if we just needed to prototype, we don't need designers. We could just ask everyone, prototype everything, we'll see if it works. That would be a very expensive project. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is why designers are here also to be able to anticipate a bit how will everything connect with each other. And... Um, find that right middle ground between overestimating our capacities to understand how everything will work together and at the same time um, throwing immediately everything in prototyping and being a bit lazy on doing our homework before. Well, that's that's a lot of things uh, mentioned. Uh, so just a, a couple of things for me that, that resonated with me, like, the, like not being the ID guy, I think really resonates with me. Like I think the best ideas that... Um, that came up in the team, I identified when they came up. And I think that's sort of the, the job of the game designer too. Like whenever you hear something that would fit the game perfectly, shouted by any team member, you can identify it. I think that's really, um, because you as the game designer probably has the most comprehensive uh, insight in how the whole system works together. Um, even though like you sometimes overestimated, uh, Jeremy. But the, the, the thing is that uh, that that's what I really like, like the fact that you're you're not the only one coming up with problems, uh, or or with solutions. I mean, uh, but it also reminds me of, of Adrian what you said about uh, the egos, um, because the counterside of that is where you are not successful in communicating to the team why the design that you have created is the right one. Uh, and I see also some other designers struggle with this sometimes. Like, hey, you know, I, I'm the designer, I have the answer, but I can't get this team member to also see it this way. Uh, even though I know like it's it's the right thing, it's by the book. Uh, we've tested it even. You're like, uh, I mean, that could be ammunition, I think, for you as a designer, if you've tested it or if you've prototyped it. But I think that's also like the, the other side where like, how can you communicate it in such a way that it's, accepted by the team. And that's also a question, like how, how do you guys do that? Uh, sorry, Kiel, I don't have a direct answer to your question yet. I would have to think about it. I just wanted to get back to uh, something Jerry mentioned. Uh, you said like we should have one solution that solves 50 problems ideally. And I think what you touched on is basically elegance and design, something we should all strive for. Um, and sort of adjacent to that, um, answering the fundamental question of this section about what to avoid. I think a key challenge or pitfall for most designers is when you work on something for a long time, you get so familiar with it that you lose sight over the complexity that you've already built. Um, so maybe after a year of a, even a very complex game, too, you, might, you might perceive it as very simple because obviously this is your day-to-day -day work. Um, you had so many touching points with it. And so then it's easy for you to add another complex thing and you might not anticipate that it's very complex. And... Uh, <laughs> So I think a key skill for any designer is to remind themselves how complex is the thing we're building at this point, given the target audience, really. Um, and always like make an astral projection out of your body and sort of like see the project from the outside again. Um, 
And I think this is like one of the most recurring issues, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, Kiel, maybe I can come back to your question regarding how do I convince team members about my opinion or my vision. And um, how it goes for me personally is just a very direct, objective conversation where I'm maybe not even like talking so much about my personal preferences, but about data, or I just try to make the other person see it from a different perspective, just than their own perspective. And uh, if I want to go further than that, uh, I will try to build a personal relationship with my team members, trying to gain their trust, uh, ideally in a scenario that involves gaming as well. For example, I created a gaming um, community on Discord for the entire company and all friends. And uh, we often meet together in the evening and just play games together. And then also topics from work pop up and maybe sometimes we rediscuss them and uh, it gives a little bit of a different environment of um, discussion space because it's not during work anymore. It's not sitting in a meeting room. It's uh, a bit more casual and sometimes that can help in my experience at least. Uh, another point that I wanted to talk about real quick where I see designers sometimes uh, failing or making things worse rather than better is difficulty balancing. And I think uh, maybe I'm a bit lacking the experience myself because I haven't worked on, on single-player offline games so much. Uh, and I would expect that with these type of games, it's especially hard to find the right difficulty curve uh, because often, I mean, we play, we play the games ourselves like hundreds of times and uh, naturally we tend to make them way too difficult than... Maybe we have the luxury of testing with other people and we see them fail and then we go completely the other way and say like, no, they, they have to be able to pass all that and it's uh, way too easy in the end. So finding the middle ground, I think, is uh, something that designers often struggle with. Um, how to solve this for single player and offline games? I don't have the answer. For multiplayer live service games, I think AI will take more and more over in that regard because it's already very data-driven, uh, looking at KPIs and everything. Uh, right now, it still needs a human to translate that into actual changes that are being done in the game. But I think in the future, this will be more and more optimized. So to just bounce off what Kiel also uh, mentioned earlier for the trust, um, I think this is um, also, I agree with Adrian, I think it's a, a two-way street. Um, I think it's really important to somehow prove oneself and gain the trust of the people we're working with. Um, I had actually yesterday or two days ago exactly a discussion about that with uh, one of the leads in our team, a lead designer, and uh, we were talking about certain decisions. And he told me, I also accepted these decisions because I trusted that you would find, uh, do you knew the, the right solution or that you would go in that direction that um, with your expertise, you could judge if it was good or not. And I did not necessarily need to have an explanation about that or get a full understanding of what's happening on the other side. That doesn't mean there should not be um, discussions where actually we explain. I think we should be really trying to explain as much as we can, but humanly also it is not possible to explain to everyone who wants to hear everything. And I think this is where design is in a specific tough spot because um, when we talk about art, for instance, you could say to somebody, okay, you want to do that, then draw it for me and we'll see, you know, and immediately we can see that you don't draw as well or you cannot, whatever, or maybe the color is not fine, but design is something that is um, leading to result much later, generally. It's not immediately I can change a variable and let's 
when it's that, it's quite easy and we don't even need to debate so much because we can judge the results. And I think um, this is a bit of work of, again, us proving ourselves and uh, being humble about the decisions, explaining to people, taking the time and at the same time, um, asking the effort of the other side to um, also respect a form of expertise the same way as none of us would uh, go to a programmer and say, yeah, but actually you just need to do that. You just need, I, I think generally when somebody says you just need that, it means they don't get the full understanding of what that thing entails. And it's really important that both sides do that work because I think everybody has been there um, you know, myself or whoever, when you start in the industry, even you go, you, you're just like, yeah, my senior, they could just do that and it would fix it. And then later on, you realize that maybe not. Um, and actually, I forgot the name of that curve, but which talks about um, the expertise and the confidence that you have, uh, um, uh, Barrett, something. Uh, but yeah, essentially, um, I think it's it, it, there is a moment where people get sufficient understanding that they are very confident, but don't understand that it, they they are missing a lot of expertise. And so the best way to 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 work positively with that is to try to explain to people, but also um, hopefully building an environment where there is sufficient trust. The same way as we again don't go behind the programmer and tells them how to program or else to give our input and trust that the other person listens to it and will then do their job and their expertise in there. And hopefully we're good enough to our job uh, at our job also so people trust us right yeah great great points i i also uh adrian i think you're totally right like building a relationship with the team is is vital right so um even like at soft games we're fully remote but we do meet a couple of times per year just for this actually and and you're right like a couple of solutions actually came out of just talking to people outside of work uh, directly, I think that that really helped. Um, and I think also uh, in in terms of the the expertise uh, uh, mentioned earlier, uh, I think if you can, as a designer, sort of bring it back to the problem you're trying to solve, then and you translate that to the person that that comes to you with the solution, um, then at least they feel heard that that there's a problem and that they know like all right. This guy at least heard me. Uh, he's taken the problem. Uh, he's not taken my solution. So whenever I discard a solution, I'm like, oh, well, maybe there's different ways of solving this. Uh, and I think this really this really helps me uh, always. And and things like uh, user tests help and actually just show them like, look, this is not working. Look, this user is not. It's not. She's not showing the intended behavior. Um, and also uh, to come back to what Marcel said, um, in terms of complexity, I think what really helps for me is is also talking directly to the developer sometimes, like, hey, you know, how how difficult is it to add this thing to the game? And so, and I'm I'm more than not surprised how much effort it takes, like um, both ways. So sometimes I'm like, hey, just add this little thing, like, uh, how hard can it be? And then. Like no, you know this is the most difficult thing you can imagine, uh, and then I'm coming with them like with a huge feature, and they're like, oh yeah, it's just changing these five things, and then we're in. So it's really like be, being open to be surprised. I think is a good uh, a good attitude. Uh, so I think some of the po uh, points you touched on, Kel and Jeremy, um, relate to making the team understand the why. Um, why do you even want to try certain as uh, try to solve certain things? Um, 
there was a really great tool that we used at the last project I was in at Jaeger. Um, it was a third-person shooter. It's not announced yet, not important. But at the very beginning of the development, what we did is make a list of so-called problem statements. So these were like ultra high level and describing certain experiences we want to capture or certain things that were important to us, right? So in a shooter like this, it could be um, we want players to go from cover to cover during one encounter. And you can have a ton of solutions for that, but that's sort of like the experience you want to, want to end up with. And if you have this all-encompassing list for the whole project and you're willing to sort of like put them into a stone slab and ideally not change them later on, Every team member can go back to this, look at it, and um, inform their ideas and uh, propose solutions. And it's then also very easy if someone comes around with an idea, um, if it doesn't work out to explain, uh, you know what, we can't do that idea because it goes against this other problem statement that we have here. So then it becomes very easy to prove. No one feels kind of like um, you arbitrarily <laughs> left them behind. Um, and also to just add to this, what we did is in certain milestones, go back over all the problem statements, engage them together as a design team. Okay, where are we at? Do we fulfill them like on a good level or medium? If it's medium, what is missing to get them to great? Um, and so this is like a great check-in point potentially for the whole team to also argue, hey, this is where we're at right now. We're missing a couple of things for this and that reason. Well, thank you, guys. We're going to move on to our fourth and final topic of the episode, which has been proposed by... Jeremy, uh, he has proposed the topic of what evolutions of game design are you most looking forward to pursuing in the future? So, Jeremy, take it away. Why did you choose that subtopic? Yes. Um, so I chose it because to me, we are in a relatively young media where a lot of things are to, left to be created, done, et, and so on. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, I try always to, to return to why I decided to join this industry, what I wanted to do. And uh, part of this was that I wanted to contribute to push the media forward to do something a bit different. And I figured out that um, this is probably something that is shared by all of us here. So um, it would be interesting to hear from you also what um, you would want to, to to contribute to or what you're looking forward to in the industry. Um, I can maybe start a bit with, with my side, but to me, um, as I mentioned earlier also, um, I really enjoy the fourth world, this idea of bringing the game a bit more into um, the real world. We have seen that we've also, um, you know, in, in, at a more micro level in some games uh, in uh, Metal Gear Solid or else, but I think there are really interesting things that can be done to bring the play a bit more into the game but especially what i think um i would want to see the industry grow as is to figure out a way to bring more meaning behind the fun um, um we have movies um etc you know books and so on that somehow bring people to reflect on themselves on the world on the current situation of many things um and i think this is more to the background um, in games or often not so much treated or uh, at a very superficial level and also not really building this on the fact that we have a player, we have somebody who is interacting and we can make them reflect on themselves, not only on a general commentary like we can do with movies on what's happening on the world in, in the world, but also you're playing, you're making potentially choices or not even potentially when you decide to invest uh, money into this or that or um, in various ways in a game, you are making choices. Um, and I think this is something that would be very interesting to develop, um, growing the media into making people think a bit more about themselves and grow as individuals when they leave the game. Great answer. I love it. Um, 
my first thoughts went to one of the biggest topics that all of tech and many industry are talking about at the moment, which is AI, because obviously it's also going to make our jobs easier. You can already go to ChatGPT and have it write a full GDD for you if you want. But then as a second thought, I I felt similar to what you just uh, told, because I don't think that AI necessarily is going to make gaming more interesting or it's, it's going to generate more games and games will be done faster but that doesn't necessarily mean that they will be better or more interesting and in that regard i am mostly looking forward to well making tools to create games more accessible for everyone in the end um, which has already happened in the past with many examples uh, roblox is just one of the few I uh, was especially hyped when I saw the presentation from Unreal and uh, the the player editor that they're going to uh, release to the Fortnite players. And this is also where my career is going to go in future, more towards the publisher side um, and helping all kinds of developers to create games and uh, hopefully make them successful and reach the charts with uh, hyper-casual and hybrid-casual mostly. So this is what I'm looking forward to. Uh, you just touched on the point with AI. Um, so I'm a huge fan of tabletop RPGs like D&D and so on. And um, these games deliver an experience that no video game can deliver these days, right? It's about um, reactively shaping a story together. Um, video games are very limited in that regard right now. But what I would really love to see is a sort of like game master AI at some point where you play an RPG and the AI fills certain NPCs with their own personality and um, a background and gives you dynamic quests and actually fills the world around you with content uh, that you can uh, experience. With regards to pacing, of course, with regards to making the right challenge for you specifically, so that basically you have the ultimately engaging game for you. And if you play it again, that will be a different experience. And I think this would be great. And I guess it is somewhat within reach. I would actually think within the next 10 years, we will see the first polished games with uh, mechanics like this in place. Cool. Just uh, about what you just said for the, like the AI as game master. I uh, played around with ChatGPT recently where I asked ChatGPT to be the dungeon master uh, and write me a story where I was the hero. And um, I think this already created a pretty interesting adventure for me. Um, Although it's like, I, I, I'm still limitless. So, so whenever I say something has to be different, the AI obeys and says, all right, fine, then we'll go your way. And so it was a little bit of a disappointing uh, experience. But I also had AI uh, on my list of things I'm looking forward to. Um, I think it will become much, much bigger. It, it probably is already much bigger than we, we know. Um, but I'm looking forward to it as a new tool set to use. Um, I'm also curious what blockchain will still do, although I'm not sure how quickly that will transition into really successful games. Um, I also still see, I, th I think subscriptions are not as big as they could be. I think there's a lot of companies now offering subscriptions or games-based um, or part of the subscription, uh, like Netflix is now doing. So I wonder where that's going to go in the, in the future. I'd be curious for that. And I think um, also what's, what's probably still small is the, um, the serious gaming, where games are teaching people something, uh, kids or, or maybe employees of companies. I think there's still huge 
growth to be made in these industries. Uh, I'm interested in all of them, so for me, it's almost hard to pick one. I still like just creating games for fun. That's still where my heart is, like creating uh, experiences. And the more emotional, the better, I think, if you can get players to, to really feel something. Uh, even in, in, our, in our relatively simple, solitaire, casual game, we have a story where players really care about the, the characters. They sometimes post it on Facebook as well, like, hey, you know, I really want to know, or I'm, I'm really psyched about what's going to happen with these characters, or I'm really sad about certain things that happened in the story. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited about everything in the space, but uh, I'm, I'm mostly excited, I think, about AI uh, and what that can offer us as well. I have to say also, I, I believe that AI um, can be really uh, game-changing in some regards because um, I think when we talk about player expression and even um, taking a very simple example, not even pushing it to the entire crafting of the game, because I think it touches a bit the topic of also um, essentially procedural generation or at least semi-procedural and some stuff like that. Um, and um, I think, but even for some NPCs, well, of course, it would have also some procedural aspects and so on, but um, having more reactive NPCs that when you, I don't know, um, start doing something, you steal something from them, you bump into them, you annoy them, you know, this is all stuff that are to some degree right now being emulated with very complex systems, uh, but with some limitations. If you have that in Red Dead GTA, these characters that somehow get annoyed after you bump several times into them and so on, um, I think this will make this level of complexity and interactivity much more accessible to all companies because now you no longer need to be a, a company that has um, created all of this uh, background behind in order to now um, yeah create such a reactive world um, and again um, that can be in a very procedural uh, approach of the whole game is um, is somehow structured behind that. But I think there is also a space for games that are not having this degree of uh, uh, procedurality. I don't know if that's really a word, uh, a word but uh, um, uh, but essentially, even in games that are meant to be more handcrafted, I think there is a space for this in order to create a degree of complexity, simplifying things, and uh, not necessarily to again cut cost but i think to be able to simply put the 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 creativity and uh, the brain and the talent of people on things that um, leverage that and really matter in the game um, maybe also avoiding um, less important dialogues or things like that and somehow um, having to to create this character that just says hi every single time you pass by or things like that um, so i'm i'm sure there are ways to really uh, enable smaller companies to to reach higher quality levels and also enable new approaches of things that so far would be unavailable to whoever doesn't have this uh, budget um, of quadruplays. I should unmute myself, sorry. Uh, I just remembered something in regards to evolutions in game design in general. Something I've been looking forward to probably for at least 10 years. So back then, when I was a student, I was a huge fan of MMORPGs. And I feel like they had their high in, at like 2008, maybe. And then the genre buried itself because everyone kind of followed the same formula. There was very little innovation in many cases, especially when you look at the more polished AA and AAA titles. And since then, the genre hasn't done much. And I just hope that someone picks the fundamental idea of what an MORPG is. It's a game with a persistent world with many players. 
and doesn't repeat the same sort of gameplay where it's like, yeah, top targeting or whatever, and you go from quest hub to quest hub. It doesn't have to be that. Um, so my hopes are with Riot pretty much right now because they are making their uh, League of Legends-based um, MMO, right? And I hope they can shake up the genre and show, yeah, it doesn't all have to be World of Warcraft-like games, but we shall see. Um, but yeah, this is an evolution I would really like to uh, uh, look at. So that that got my gears turning. So the the what I'm still waiting for uh, is the um, it's a really good uh, spatial game where you're like when it's where it's using your actual graphic geographical location. Um, I think Pokemon had a good stab at it with their with their game. I think it was pretty cool, but then it also sort of I I don't know maybe I missed the whole hype of something, but I haven't seen any good games using the technology um where yeah i would I'm, I'm still thinking about like what if you could play something on a on a field maybe combined with uh with ar um that could really be like the next level i think but uh yeah I, i'm still i'm looking forward to some like something coming out in that area i would also love to see a lot more innovation in these areas. I think with location-based games, they have a similar curse like MMOs do still have, where everyone is looking at that one super hit and trying to replicate it, and they don't innovate so much. Um, with Riot games, I'm not sure if they're going to deliver on that, since most of their games are also combinations of like already existing games. Uh, League of Legends was based on Dota. Um, uh, What's the shooter called? Valorant is based on CS to a big part. And uh, I think they will add something new to the market, but maybe it's not as fundamentally groundbreaking as as at least I would hope in that regard. Um, would also love to see more innovation in, in that space, though. Um, maybe it could happen with AI. Like I said, tools are getting more and more accessible. I think it's only a matter of time until someone... Uh, creates an algorithm that just throws all the templates together and creates uh, millions of games, throws them all on the market, checks the KPIs and finds the one or two that, that work well. Maybe we'll actually see AI driving innovation more than we do at the moment. Uh, would be interesting, but I think only time can really tell. Okay, awesome. I think we've just about covered everything, right, to do with game design. Uh yeah, I just want to say a quick thank you to our panel today, Adrian, Jeremy, Kiel, and Marcel for taking part in the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. And thank you to the listener for taking some time to have a listen to the episode. And we look forward to welcoming you again very soon.